Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do What about the donates who spent their whole lives Lost happy footballs and catching sack flies Their guys, remember that guy Remember that guy, remember that guy Remember that guy, remember that guy Just gonna remember some guys now. With the ninth selection in the 2018 draft, the Oakland Athletics select Kyler Murray, outfielder at the University of Remember That Guy, the show where we minor memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. Hey there, folks! It's me, James, one of your hosts, and uh, I'm ready to get started sooner rather than later, eh? Eh? I like that one. Sooner rather than later, Diaz with you once again. Nowhere else I'd rather be than back here. Uh, we do have a very special guest. It's not Kyler Murray, but he is another Heisman that knows a thing or two about sports crossovers. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, you know what? It's me, Charlie Ward. I am the best of all. I get Heisman and NBA. That's right, baby. I'm so glad you got that. By the way, uh, Alan Houston. I, I, was... I picked it up this time. I picked it up this time. Alan Houston was courtside at the Westchester Knicks game today. Oh, that's awesome. So, Xavier, if you don't mind, actually, the Knicks is perfect. I'd like to ask, what do you think of the worst tournament to ever exist, as I understand it? You know what? Fuck the fact that the Knicks are going to end up playing 40 home games and 42 away games. That feels like something that they could find a way to fix afterwards. I don't know why that they're punished being good enough to make the quarterfinals of the tournament that they lose a home game it almost incentivizes you if you if you're going up against a great team to just not want to do that so that's strange and it's also too bad the bucks shot fucking 80 percent from three and could not miss if you score 122 points in milwaukee you expect to win especially with the number i think three rated defense in the league but not yesterday it happens i'm not too pressed about it knicks are still better than I expect that at this point in the season, having played the hardest schedule in the league. I have a question about the post game from last night. I don't know if you guys saw us. Uh, the, the Bucks by making the semifinals, the, the, all those players got $100,000. And an interviewer was talking to Giannis about this afterwards. And Giannis had one of like the classic, oh, we're, we're getting paid. Giannis is a very likable player. I want to say I think he's delightful. I think he is probably the best player in basketball in the world right now, except for maybe Asia Wilson. This is not to, to, to demean him. It, do we think he's that any part of it is starting to be a continuation of the honest act? I don't want it to be. I want it to be genuine. But this was the first time I stopped for a second. Like, you, you had to know you were winning $100,000 tonight, right? I mean, I do love natural charisma, let's say. I guess. Yeah. Enthusiasm for like Oreos. Like, remember he had the whole thing about like Oreos? I just had. Uh, a smoothie for the first time god bless america we completely forgave him for getting the 50 chick-fil-a nuggets like that's fine we're gonna let that one slide (laughs) he did if you remember correctly he also asked for permission to film the worker first before filming which Mm -hmm. i think is major major plus points in his category exactly like even the one time he interacted with a shitty restaurant he was still the sweetest guy in the world about it i don't know i mean 
Here, I don't fault Giannis for that. I do fault him for insisting that the Bucks continue to employ his brother, who is not good at any skills in basketball. <laughs> I will hold that against him. See, I, I've watched Rise. After you've seen that movie and you've seen how Giannis grew up and how that whole family grew up, I don't fault him for wanting to spend as much time with his family as possible and for being perpetually happy about the fact that this is his life. The LeBron James meme, he actually is the personification of that. I mean, look, like that's fine. And yet his family should be courtside for every game. Alan Iverson's mom was courtside for every game. She wasn't on the team. Like there's a difference here. <laughs> courtside and on the court. To, there is very clearly a demarcation. Courtside yeah, but was, was she 6'7"? Because at least Thanasis is six seven. six seven. That is fair. He is tall. I forgot. He is good at that skill of basketball. He's tall. That's it. that's good. <laughs> Xavier, I'm sorry to derail all of this. It's, I've just been thinking about Giannis today. Uh, but is there anything else that's been making memories for you? Yeah, a couple things. Real quick, Shiz Austin, the first Temple student athlete alumni to donate to Temple's NIL fund for their current players. The first one. Which is wild when you think about it, because you think about the fact that there are over a dozen, if not more, in the NFL. Don Staley hasn't? Well, Staley never played at Temple. That's true, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. That would be, honestly, that would be like the most insulting thing. Like, and I love Don Staley, but she's like, oh, poor Temple, here, take $50,000. Yeah, I don't think she has, (laughs) but she also isn't a student athlete, but... Hey, the guy who's playing for Seahorses Mikawa in Japan is the first to do it. I read a big article last week about how just far behind the eight ball Temple is in NIL and how it seems like Temple's like uh, leadership does not give a shit whatsoever. So fans have been trying to do it themselves and reach out to former players in a very high profile way. They talked to Brandon McManus, who said, nah, other conversations need to be had before I'm willing to give any money to that on Twitter. In a very high-profile rebuke of anyone doing that. But shout-out to Shiz. Hopefully Temple can actually make some money to keep players that are good, because otherwise they're all going to leave. Also, the Rule 5 draft happened today. I love the Rule 5 draft because it's just so weird. It takes 10 minutes, and there's just a Major League round and then a Minor League round. And they just go around... Make sure everyone's there, and then just you do ever go down the line. You can just pass, and then you're done. But if you pick, you could just keep picking for multiple yep. rounds if you feel like it. This year, there were only ten players picked in the major league round. Three of them were picked from the Yankees, including Mitch Spence and Matt Sauer went one and two to the O's and the Royals, and then. Carson Coleman went to the Rangers and then four other Yankees were picked in the minor league section. And it's like Yankees were not that good last year, but apparently everyone loves the Yankees minor league pitchers. So we're just going to take a bunch of them. And if they don't stay on that roster for the entire year, they get to send them back to the Yankees. And that's my favorite thing. The rule five draft. Real quick, both of you first, who is your favorite rule five acquisition that your team has made? Ah, uh, is Flaherty Rule 5? It's not TJ McFarlane, who is also a Rule 5 draft pick. He's great, but he's not up there. It is either Anthony Santander or Ryan Flaherty, if Ryan Flaherty is a Rule 5 draft pick. Xavier? 
weirdly enough, it's Nestor, who was picked by the Orioles and then sent back to us. So it's funny that that's what happened with Nestor, because for me, the answer is Shane Victorino, and I just had to look it up real quick to be sure. First of all, he was originally with the Dodgers. He was then Rule 5 drafted by the Padres. They sent him back to the Dodgers. The Phillies Rule 5 draft him. They tried to send him back to the Dodgers, and the Dodgers said, no, you got, you got to keep him now, finders keepers. And then he went to AAA, and he hit 310, and then he got promoted and won the World Series. What an incredibly silly draft. Also, it's very like, fun. What are, what are the, like, what's the Rule 4 draft? Like, what's the Rule 2 draft? <laughs> I, actually, I think the Rule 2 draft is the actual... That's the uh, amateur draft. I think that's the amateur draft. I think that's, that's what the they call it. Draft. What's the Rule yeah. 1 draft? I don't know. We'll have the to amateur draft. We'll, 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 we'll figure out what 1, 3, and 4 are and report back. Other than that, shout out to Arsenal beating Luton with another last second Declan Rice winner, his second of the season. Arsenal have had three different winning goals in the 89th minute or later this season, along with others in the 86th and 84th. Their ability to score late has been extremely important for the team, and I've loved it. And last... Have you two heard of Reza Balucci? Can't say that I have. Any relation to Monica? So I just watched a, like a, a little documentary about this guy. You'll probably know him when I say that. He's the guy who tried to travel from Florida to Bermuda in a hamster ball, and the Coast Guard had to stop him and shoot it down. Uh, yeah, and sure. It. No, I totally remember <laughs> that very standard thing that we all remember. And then tried doing it again in a hamster wheel that also got it stopped by the Coast Guard. At this point, he has tried multiple bubble expeditions to Puerto Rico, Bermuda, New York, London, and gets stopped by the Coast Guard every single time where they destroy things that he's put about $100,000 of money in, into. And I was like, I need to know more about this man. Turns out, so he's Iranian, came to America after being brutally assaulted by, like, Iran's National Guard for not being Muslim enough. Like, literally, the offense was, like, crimes against Islam for not being Muslim enough. He had been a cyclist on the Iranian national team, defected to Germany, where he was a professional cycler in Germany, Cycled through 55 different countries promoting world peace. Came to the U.S. in 2002, was granted political asylum. Then started distance running, promoting world peace. Ran from L.A. to Ground Zero after 9-11 as a stand against terrorism. And did all of these, like, peace runs that had, like, massive media attention in the early 2000s. Before disappearing for years and then coming back as a guy determined to solo his way to Bermuda in a bubble. I got to give you credit, Xavier. I entered your larger explanation of him really feeling like, what What the fuck is this guy expecting every time? Like, why is he doing this? I have come all the way around to like, why is anyone fucking stopping him? You fe- it why feels is the like Coast Guard person- not escorting him <laughs> as like the safety police? It feels like the only person he would hurt is himself. But apparently it's so important that the Coast Guard has said they have spent... Hundreds of thousands of dollars stopping him multiple times. They could have fed like like a hundred families, probably. What? And money. we know 
the exact way to get him to stop doing this, which is to allow him to finish doing this. The documentary was great because they went to uh, one of his workshops where they showed him putting stuff together. <laughs> and he he took out a club. He said, this is for hitting fish. I hit them on head. They get a coma. I eat them. <laughs> Specifically the words, they get coma. I eat them. It's just, it's so good. And I had heard about him before, but I didn't really watch anything in depth until recently. It, it's just phenomenal. Let this man go to Bermuda. Just make a deal. Say he gets one. Just give him one. Everybody e- gets one. Everybody does get one. Diaz, what is your one? Or more? Well, my one, I just want to keep it simple. Because, James, I want to do a brief redux of your memory from last week. I, I don't want to do overkill. But we do need to bring up Henry Kissinger one more time. It does you specifically. He's still dead. Like he is still dead. He hasn't come back. He's still dead. It's great. Every day I wake up and Henry Kissinger is still dead, but his memory does live on. For better, for worse, his memory does live on. And he today was memorialized on the Pat McAfee show. Now I love Pat McAfee myself. I think he knows exactly who he is, and he doesn't pretend to be anything else. I, I like it. I feel like he stays in his lane, but he doesn't really challenge his guests when he comes on. I think it would be fair to say. And he did not challenge his guests today who compared himself and his view of the world and oh his sport as a diplomat. He compared himself to Henry Kissinger and then wanted to also go on to reiterate that he does believe in a strong military. And I just need to say, how many people are there on Earth? There's like eight billion. Somewhere in like the eight range. There's like 7.999 billion people that you could have referred to otherwise. But Adam Silver <laughs> chose to refer to Henry Kissinger when trying to talk about his view as like a diplomat for his sport. And like, I mean, what I get what he's saying like, there. He's well, saying like, that he's saying that my sport is more important than anything else. The so real politics. So, so I am going. I am going to take the position of doing whatever is best for basketball, regardless of how many people are brutally murdered for for because of it. I will it's kill kind of everyone. I will kill everyone to make sure that the NBA makes money. I mean, whether or not he was being honest, you know, Freudian slip in that moment, whatever you want to say. I just like I watched the Eagles in the Super Bowl against the Chiefs last year. And I thought Jalen Hurts had the worst fumble of all time. Like, unforced, just of his own. Like, oh, you had the ball, and now you don't. What did you do that for? Why would you do that? And I love Jalen Hurts, and I don't love Adam Silver, which is why I am very glad to see this fumble. It's just so unforced. And then, why do you need to double down that you believe in a strong military? Like, what? (laughs) What are we doing here? In case people thought he was too peace-loving for comparing himself to Henry Kissinger, the only thing I'll say about Adam Silver is I used to think when I was younger that the most reptilian-looking person associated with the NBA I would ever see was Chris Bosh. And then at one point I saw Adam Silver for the first time. I was like, well, he really. Twins. I Honestly, it makes me rue the day that Mark Tatum, the current deputy commissioner, will eventually take over as commissioner because like, I loved Adam Silver when he was just the fucking dork that came on and read the second round picks. It was like, hey, 
they're cheering him because he's not David Stern. What a what a nice little twist. Like when you're like defining characteristic is just not David Stern. But now when your defining characteristic is geopolitical analogies in which you are Henry Kissinger. I don't know. Hey, you look, he saw an open spot. He saw a vacancy and he slithered on into it. It's in, in our continuing documentation of the worst commissioner in sports. We we really got to give it to Adam Silver. He's dedicated. They're going to make so much money on the Seattle and Las Vegas expansion teams. I read an article today that it might be a billion dollars per a team. Year, probably. <laughs> no, no. The, the expansion fee is a yeah. billion dollars oh, yes. per team. And then the they expect their media rights deal to double. Like, you'd think at some oh, point right. there'd be a saturation in the market. But they're like, no, the, this media deal... We expect it to be twice as much, which would mean a salary cap of potentially 170, 180 million. Bonkers. It's a lot, a lot of money, but money isn't what makes the world go around. I think it's the memories that are made. So, James, I got to know what's making memories for you. Uh, sure, I'll, I'll round off our small little world here. I do not want to talk about hoops instead. I'd like to talk about some hockey in British Columbia. Not Vancouver, though. I don't want to talk the fact that the Canucks are having a strong start. I don't want to talk about the Clash of the Hughes brothers that we've had recently. In fact, I do not want to talk about the city of Vancouver. I would like to talk about Vancouver Island. Specifically, within Vancouver Island, there's a place called the Coechan Valley Regional District. And that is where you can find, in the small city of Duncan, the Coechan Community Center, which has a problem. A very, very big problem. And their very, very big problem is the world's largest hockey stick. How big is it? The world's largest hockey stick. Well, let me tell you first to to set the scene. It was built in 1986 for the Vancouver World Exposition. It was built to the length of 62 meters. Do you want to guess how many feet that is real quick? Uh, Like 200. 200, almost on the dot. And it is about 28,000 kilograms. That is nearly 30 tons. This big old chunk of Douglas fir, a replica hockey stick. Uh, Built for the World Exposition, but then shortly thereafter moved here in Duncan to this community center where it has been the world's biggest hockey stick for 35 years, just greeting people there. Recently, in the past few years, it has become obvious that, you know, having a giant hockey stick for 35 years, it starts to break down a little bit. starts to have maintenance costs that the people of the area have decided are too much. Last year, there was a point where a northern flicker kind of woodpecker had set up shop and is now like burrowing into the stick. And that was kind of the breaking point. Okay, we need to address this as a community. And so there was a voting initiative to determine what to do with this. Like, are we going to spend the 1.5 million as a municipality to do what we would need to do to set this up? Or are we going to find something else with the stick? And about 70% of the population, sadly, did vote, no, we cannot appropriate that many funds. Which means they're looking for an interested buyer. So if you are interested in owning the world's largest hockey stick, you can contact the good people of Duncan, British Columbia. I couldn't find a price listed anywhere because I have to imagine they're willing to hand it off to anyone that will take it on uh, and also pay the transporting fee. Something I should clarify, were you to purchase this, you would have to do it pretty soon if you want to own the world's largest hockey stick because you won't be able to own the world's largest hockey stick for too long because it was announced January 2023, that the town of Lockport, Illinois, 
They are currently building a small regional ice hockey rink, and they have announced that uh, it will feature a 76.2 meter hockey stick. That is exactly 250 feet, which will make it the new world's largest hockey stick until it starts to break down in presumably the year 2060 or so. Uh, If any of us are still alive, we'll see what new hockey stick gets built then. Anyway, folks, if you'd like to crowdsource purchasing the world's largest hockey stick, you can find all of our links again at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Real quick, I do want to say I still have not forgiven British Columbia for having Vancouver the city not be on Vancouver the island and then having their capital, Victoria, be on Vancouver the island and not having that one called Vancouver and the other one called Victoria. It's so simple. Switch the names. Have Vancouver be on Vancouver Island and have the biggest city be the capital. Fucking annoying. I I hear none of this. Go Canucks, go. That's like how originally the island was San Juan and the city was Puerto Rico, which like actually made sense because it's like, oh yeah, it's like a beautiful place where we put our ships. It's very logical. And then they switched it around. A city Mm -hmm. being a port makes more sense than an entire island being a port. Right. Come on. But in fairness, the way America has treated Puerto Rico. (laughs) Well, put all our shit down there. Throw some some toilet paper and paper towels around. (laughs) It's fine. But that is not what we're here for today. Instead, we want to talk about some different hasty and rash choices made without necessarily thinking about the consequences. And Xavier... I think you've got an idea of how we can kind of parlay that into guys this week. That's true. I thought it'd be interesting to talk about guys where they did not want to go to a specific place or people thought they did not want to go to a specific place and tried to make it clear, hey, don't draft me. It's not going to go well. Don't do it. Don't waste your time. Don't waste my time. And... Yeah, we've seen some high-profile instances of this, one of the the most famous being the Eli Manning and Phillip Rivers trade for each other when Eli was like, I'm not going to go to San Diego. John Elway, you know, refused to get drafted uh, and said, fuck it, I'm going to go back to school. Thank you for avoiding what town he very much didn't want to go to, Xavier. I appreciate that. Bo Jackson, like, very high-profile, he said, fuck you, Tampa Bay. I believe that you intentionally screwed my baseball college eligibility. I will not go there. And, you know, we had the Eric Lindros issue where he was so against going there, they traded him twice, and they had to have a league arbitrator decide what trade happened first to figure out who he would go to. But I'm glad that James started talking about hockey because we are going to stick with hockey. The Ottawa Senators came to the NHL as an expansion team in the 92-93 season, alongside the Tampa Bay Lightning. That season, the Lightning finished last in the division with 23 wins and 53 points. The Senators finished last in the league with 10 wins and 24 points. The next season, we added number one overall pick, Alexander Daigle, and it was expected, you know, they'll make a bit of a jump with this new talent. They won 14 games and finished with 37 points, which is 20 behind the next worst team. There were two more expansion teams that year, the Florida Panthers and the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim, who finished with 83 and 71 points respectively. So this now second-year team, with the number one overall pick, finished nearly 40 points behind 
two new expansion teams. They are absolutely awful. 94-95, third season. This is the lockout shortened season. Once again, rooted to the bottom. They have nine wins this year, which is half of the next lowest team. After this year, they get the number one pick again. And there was hope that, you know, they could finally show some improvement. And that's when they drafted Brian Burrard. Brian Burrard was born on March 5th, 1977 in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Uh, He began his junior career playing for Mount St. Charles Academy. He won three championships before leaving after his junior season. He had some offers to go to the college route, Boston College, University of Maine, University of Michigan. But he wanted to go to the OHL instead. He thought it would be a better pathway to the pros. So he gets drafted by the Detroit Junior Red Wings. And this first season, he wins the OHL championship. He puts up 75 points in 58 regular season games, 24 points in 21 playoff games. He makes the league's first all-star team and was the league's rookie of the year, only the third defenseman in OHL history to ever get that honor. And this made him a perfect target for a Senators team that could not defend for shit. So, the Senators chose him number one overall, making him the first American to be drafted number one by a Canadian team. Uh, This would stand until Austin Matthews was drafted by the Leafs in 2016, but still, to this day, it's just those two. At the time, a lot of outside observers in hockey media thought that Berard, as an American, would refuse to report to a Canadian team and thought that the Senators made a massive mistake in drafting him over Canadian defenseman Wade Redden, who went number two to the Islanders. But Berard did report. He later said, quote, I think a lot of people thought that this cocky, arrogant American didn't want to play in Canada, and that's not true at all. So you might be wondering where I'm going here, because in a twist of fate, it seems the Senators did not actually want Berard and had bought into the rumors of him not wanting them either. What? The Senators were not interested in winning that year. Everyone thought that, that, all right, it's been long enough, they should be trying to win. Turns out, they had decided ahead of time they were going to tank again and essentially signed off on just not trying this whole season. So they picked a guy who they thought wasn't going to come so they could stay terrible. Who was, if I may, who's the prize that they think they're going to tank for this next year? I think it was more of just the fact that they thought they were not good enough in general. The person they picked number one overall the next year, because they do get the number one pick as the second in a row, was Chris Phillips, another defenseman, this one being a Canadian. So they just went defense back-to-back years, the number one overall pick. What's the the play here? So uh, one of the things about the Ottawa Senators in this time is that they were being extremely mismanaged. There's a reason why they were bad for so long when other expansion teams came in and had success well before the Sens ever got some. So when Berard showed up to Canada to you know report, they scrambled to try and figure something out. So what do you think they did? Traded him? They told him to fuck off back to America. So they told him, hey, here's your contract offer. It's way less than any other number one pick has ever gotten. 
we are intentionally, essentially, intentionally lowballing you to try to get you to go away. Rightfully, he does not sign that deal. So they say, "All right, go back to America and stay in the OHL." So he he's like, oh, "Okay, I guess I'll do that." At the same time, the Senators were having a very public contract dispute with their star player Alexi Yashin, who had demanded a trade, and they suspended after he demanded a trade because essentially Yashin had been their only good player for the past couple years, but was making much less than Alexander Daigle, who they had assumed was going to be good. So they gave him a great contract, but then he was awful despite being the number one pick. And Yashin was like, I've been the best player on the team. Why am I making half as much as Daigle? And they just said, no, fuck you. You're not playing for us until you stop this. Not a very well-run franchise. When you said, like, they were in this state of disarray, there was a part of me that was like, yeah, were, past tense for the Ottawa Senators. But I have to admit, like, they're a dumpster fire now. This is very bad. This is worse. Could, could you imagine, in the space of a month, essentially telling the number one overall pick that you don't want to play him, and also, like, suspending your best player while being still the worst team in the league? This is the type of shit you could only get away with in the 90s, honestly. Like, in a modern context, like, imagine who's going to get the number one pick in NFL. Bears, because of the Panthers. That's that's so funny. That's true. But imagine the Bears, oh yeah, we drafted Caleb Williams and we want to pay him 100000 a year because that's a smart, logical thing that a franchise does. And, you know, we see stuff like this sometimes in baseball. You know, because they're drafting both high schoolers and college players, sometimes they'll try to lowball one because they have a limited bonus pool. But that's not the case here. They just don't want him to play there because they want to be bad. And they didn't think he was going to show up in the first place. Back in America, he goes back to Detroit, this time with the Detroit Whalers because the team had severed their ties with the Red Wings in the offseason. So they went from the junior Red Wings to the Detroit Whalers. And he's great again. Puts up 89 points in 56 games. All-star team again. And it's just, hey, this number one overall pick, who's really, really good, is just chilling in the OHL because his NHL team doesn't want to play him. Because he, he's he been pretty, you know, he hasn't been hasn't really spoke, spoken up about this at, the, at this point. Until finally, in January, with the Senators saying, nope, we're still not going to offer you a deal. We're still not going to play you. He finally requested a trade. And what did the senators do? They immediately leaked to the media. See, this is the vindication. He never wanted to play in Canada in the first place. He's a bad guy who hates Ottawa. And the Canadian media ate it up. They started trashing this 18-year-old kid who was his team did not want and drafted because they thought he did not want them. They were just destroying him in the Canadian press. Eventually, on January 23rd of 1996, they do grant his request, and they trade him in a three-team deal to the Islanders, alongside former guy nominee Marty Straka, in exchange for Wade Redden. So essentially, they just waited six months and swapped the number one and number two overall picks. It's one of those things where it's one of the weirdest hockey drafts they could have had redden in the first place 
but they didn't draft Redden because they thought that he would play for them. And like they had to give up Straka in exchange for did they have to lose anyone else major in order to just like get the player they wanted all along? There was another player that they sent out to Toronto, but as far as I'm aware, it wasn't anyone of like of significance. And you know, Redden ended up being a great player for Ottawa for over a decade. So it didn't end up being a terrible trade for them, but it was a extremely unnecessary thing that happened because they just didn't want to be good, so they drafted the guy that they thought wasn't going to play. So Berard, now on the Islanders, finally gets to play, and he gets booed mercilessly by Canadians, not just Ottawa fans, but all Canadian fans. Like, this arrogant, piece-of-shit American who thinks he's too good for Canada. It was merciless. But he's finally getting a chance to play now. And in the 96-97 season, he puts up 48 points while playing 82 games. This is still, like, top five ever for a teenager in defense. And he wins the Calder Trophy that year over Jerome Ginla of Calgary, who, you know, would go on to have a very long and storied career in Calgary. But he wins in a landslide. He gets, I think, 43 of the 54 first place votes. And it's phenomenal. Everyone's like, people in America are like, why didn't Ottawa play this guy? People in Canada are like, fuck this guy. He should be playing for Ottawa right now, but he hates Canada. It's pretty brutal. But thanks to his strong play, he actually gets a spot on the U.S. Olympic team in the 98 Olympics in Nagano. At just 20 years old, he's the youngest player on the team by far. That team wasn't that good. They made it out of the group, and they lost in the quarterfinals to the Czech Republic and finished sixth overall. But still, you know, as a 20-year-old playing for your country, things are looking pretty good for Brian Burrard. After another season and a half with the Islanders, he gets surprisingly traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs. This was a weird. This was really weird because he was still considered one of their best players at his age. Everyone was kind of shocked as to why they were trading him. And apparently it's pretty well known that the Islanders GM just had a temper and would get into moods where he just decided that he wanted to trade people. And because of that, he traded him for Felix Potvin, the goalie who had ended up with a state percentage of under 900 and would last a couple games before just being terrible. The vindictiveness of sending him to Canada, because I was going to say, ah, if that's like a good value move for the franchise, then I see why you wouldn't necessarily like care about the kid's health. Cause it doesn't seem like Canada is somewhere that wants to accept him with open arms, but that he's doing that like on a whim just to fuck him over really, really stings. Yeah. It, it was a weird one. It was a trade that nowadays would be really questioned by a lot of people. It just, it did not make much sense whatsoever. And at this time, the Islanders had just drafted Rick DiPietro number one overall. So they were like, we love this kid enough to draft him number one overall, but we want a veteran goaltender just for a little bit while we bring DiPietro along slowly. So let's trade our Calder Trophy winning 22-year-old defenseman for an aging backup goalie. It it was very strange. And again, he gets sent to Canada, which is not a place that 
you know, has any love for him at this point. In Toronto, you know who he becomes friends with? Ty Domi. And Ty Domi's going to make sure this kid is protected. And turns out, people on the Maple Leafs love him. They're like, oh, wait, he's nothing like, you know, the, the rumors said. He's just a nice kid. And Maple Leafs fans love him. He later said that Toronto is one of his favorite places in the world. And he loved playing in Canada. And he has a really strong debut for the Leafs. And he plays really important minutes on a team that makes it to the conference finals. Still one of the most successful Maple Leafs seasons in the past 25 years. Second year with the Leafs, he has 30 points in 64 games. He became the quarterback of their power play unit. He developed a reputation as one of the best puck-moving defensemen in the league. And then, on March 11th, 2000, during a game against the Senators in Ottawa, Marion Hossa clipped Berard in the eye with his stick on a follow-through. This was young 21-year-old Marion Hossa, who was known for not being very secure with his stick. And this was bad. Quote, there was so much blood, his mother Pam told the Canadian press. All I could say was, oh my God, oh my God. The eye was severely slashed in the sclera. It resulted in a retinal tear and a detached retina. At the hospital, they had to rush him there. They, they told him, you're going to lose this eye. Like, there's no chance of saving it. And he had to have emergency surgery that lasted three and a half hours. And everyone said, this kid's career is done. He's, he can't play anymore. And due to the severity of the injury, the NHL insurance paid him $6.5 million because they said, your career is over. You're, you're done. At the age of 23, he had just turned 23, you're done. He misses the rest of this season, misses the entirety of the next season, undergoes seven different eye surgeries. Eventually, he is able to technically keep his right eye, but he's left with 20 over 600 vision. So he is legally blind in it, and there's no way for him to play hockey. Until he gets a special contact implanted in his right eye that brings him to 20 over 400, which meets the league's minimum vision requirement, because the NHL has a minimum vision requirement for people to be allowed to play hockey. And that feels like way too low of a minimum to play hockey when you are firing pucks at 100 miles an hour. You know what? I, I thought the same thing when I saw that. Why have a minimum at that point? I agree. It seems a little low, but that was the requirement. And by April of 2001, he starts working out again, eventually gets back on the ice and starts skating for the first time in over a year. He then gets a call from Herb Brooks because, you know, Herb still coaching U.S. team, knows him from the 98 team, and said, hey, we want you to come out to Colorado, train with us for a bit. And so he goes out to Colorado, and he trains with the U.S. team that were getting ready for the 2002 Salt Lake Olympics. He's there for a bit, working with the guys, and some teams are like, maybe he can play still. Again, he's only 24 at this point, and only a couple years removed from Call the Trophy, but also still legally blind in one eye. They tested him, and he has no peripheral vision on the right side. He cannot see anything to the side, which not good in a sport like hockey. At least by this time, they were 
pretty much getting rid of the blindside hits, though. Like, they, they were penalizing them, at least, at this point. A bit. You know, it, it's still 2002, so there's still a lot going on. You can probably still get hurt pretty bad. But, despite this, the Leafs are like, hey, we, we still love you, would really want you to come back. The Leafs are good at this point, and he essentially tells them, hey, I don't know how good I can be, and I don't want to impact like your season. I don't want to be a drag on the team. Despite the Leafs saying, hey, we want you anyway, we don't care, he signs with the Rangers because the Rangers were bad and were willing to give him a tryout contract. Essentially wouldn't have to worry about hurting a team if he couldn't play up to the standards that he'd set for himself. You can go ahead and say it. he doesn't care how the New York Rangers do. He cares how the Toronto Maple Leafs do. Yeah, pretty much. He wanted to play so badly that he gave back the $2 million that was left from his injury settlement because that was conditioned on him not playing again. And he gave that back for a tryout contract. Like, no, no guaranteed money, just the tryout contract. They, people asked him, like, do you think you can play with essentially one eye? Quote, I have to keep the play in front of me. You're supposed to do that anyway. I'm trying to keep it simple. The first guy who's open gets the puck. That's how you're supposed to play the game. It doesn't matter that he can't see out of his right eye. As long as he keeps things simple, he can play fine. So he signs with the Rangers, and they're actually impressed. They're like, okay, this guy can play. So they convert his tryout contract to a full $2 million guaranteed contract for the season, essentially making back that money that he had given up, taking that shot to get back in the NHL. After that season, he moves to the Bruins, where he puts up 38 points in his best season since 97-98. After that year, an NHL independent arbitrator awarded him a salary of $2.5 million, but the Bruins decided that they just didn't want to pay that. It made him the second player in NHL history to ever become a free agent via arbitration, which I didn't even know you could do. I thought like arbitration was like the each party submits, you know, like a you're, you're locked in for it to happen if you're entering it. Like if yeah. you're going into arbitration, you have to then sign them. I also was under this impression. But apparently it turns out if the player's choice gets awarded, the team can just not pay them and then they become a free agent. So he's the second player in NHL history that this ever happened to. He doesn't get his $2.5 million, but the Blackhawks offer him a $2 million deal and sign him to a one-year contract. And in Chicago, he continues to improve. He finishes that 2003-2004 season second on the team in scoring with 47 points. And he gets awarded the Bill Masterton Trophy, which is an annual award that the NHL gives out to the player who best exemplifies the qualities of perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication. You know, things are looking pretty good for Brian Burrard. And then the lockout happens. This lockout pretty much kills any momentum that he had. He does not go overseas to play during that season. He doesn't get signed by the Blackhawks again after it. And then he suffers a bad back injury that pretty much saps any other ability to move that he had. So he plays a couple more seasons with the Blue Jackets and the Islanders. But eventually, he just has to medically retire uh, after the end of the 2008-2009 season. But, you know, we still have a guy who, in a weird twist, was thought of as a don't draft me. And the team drafted him because they thought he was a don't draft me. But it turns out the team was actually hoping he was a don't draft me. 
and didn't want him to actually play for them. So he gets shuffled around, has a great season, looks like he's going to be a star, gets his eyeball nearly slashed out of his eye, wants to play so badly he undergoes seven different surgeries, gives up his insurance money, comes back, gets the NHL award for perseverance, and ends up having, you know, a decade-long NHL career. Was it the career that you might have expected after that Calder Trophy? No, but given the the things he had to overcome, like very solid career. And also, he also he once took down con men that were uh, targeting NHL players and stealing money from them, which is probably one of my favorite stories. The headline is uh, Brian Berard helps bring down con men that stole millions from retired NHLers, where he essentially right to the point. <laughs> The, apparently these guys like pretended to be uh, like financial advisors and stole like 15 million from 25 different hockey players. And they, they described him as Brian Bart as like Jake Gyllenhaal in Zodiac. A good, healthy, well-adjusted <laughs> character that we should all aspire to. This is the blurb from the news. Berard, who was picked first overall in the 1995 entry draft by the Ottawa Senators, has devoted much of his recent life to pouring through bank records and documents and sifting through emails as he cooperated with the FBI and exposing one of the most extensive con jobs in sports history. Quote, I feel like I can finally close a chapter in my life. It's been a tough four years finding out a friend slash business manager had stolen from me after I retired from the NHL, said Berard, who estimates he lost at least $3 million and maybe as much as $6 million in forged lines of credit, worthless real estate deals, and bad investments in a tech startup, video game company, and the shoulder pad company. Quote, I never made any money from any of it. Now I can move on to my next career knowing he will be held responsible for what he's done. So he just, he gets scammed along with a bunch of other people and spends years proving that these guys are con artists and getting them arrested by the FBI. Just, it's so funny because he looks like a man you do not want to piss off because right now he has these long flowing locks. He's built like a truck and he has essentially one eye. Like he can't really yeah, open the other eye. I he looks kind of jacked up. And I, I just love that, like Jake Gyllenhaal in Zodiac, is possibly my favorite descriptor of a person. <laughs> I just I, I just really like Brian Burrard, and I like the twist on the Don't You Dare Draft Me, where the team was hoping he was a Don't You Dare Draft Me, and essentially played him off as a villain to hide their own incompetence. Very interesting to present a twist interpretation on a category that you brought to the show. A very galaxy brain approach, and I have to tip my cap to it. Yeah, you and Mike Shyamalan I... bows at the altar. <laughs> it, it fits the category. I just thought it was the most interesting story, and I really wanted to talk about it. But I'm really excited to see what, what, what you guys picked. Well, Xavier, while you have all of those more modern ones that you mentioned, they're a little more fresh in our minds. I, I want to point out that there is you know, a rich history of this instance as you've described, the situation that you've described about someone being selected by someone they don't want to play for. And these examples stand out to us now, but I do feel like I need to point out they stand out to us now because these modern examples are departures from the norm. All drafts, in every league, regardless of country, they're all more boring now than they used to be. Like, we've talked about it in this country. We've talked about it with our friend Evan about some of the Japanese drafts. It was the Wild West initially with a lot of these when they started out. And also, the allure and the leverage of a lot of the teams towards the beginnings of these drafts, at least in North America, it was a little less 
absolute than it is today. And so I want to take us back to where the world's biggest draft began and the guy that that draft began with, a guy by the name of Jay Burwanger. The Yale legend? Not Yale, but we will talk about plenty of those old-fashioned college powerhouses. Don't try and guess now, because I promise there's some delightful schools that we will talk about <laughs> in their dominant okay. football performances at the time. To do that, though, we can't start with that draft. We do have to take it a little bit further back to March 19th, 1914, where in Dubuque, Iowa, John and Polly Burwanger welcomed their son, Jay. I should say his name is John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. No, his name is John Jacob Burwanger, but they do call him Jay very early on. Uh, he's one of five kids and, you know, dad's taking care of the family. He's a blacksmith. I will admit this is much later than I thought you could still be really making a living as a blacksmith. And I say that as someone who works at a museum with a volunteer blacksmith, didn't know that you could still be making money for that in the 1920s, but there we are. And as they're growing up, Jay takes to all kinds of sports all throughout school and Dubuque High He's a very good wrestler. He's a big track star. But above all, he is an all-state halfback in football. And even in the 1930s, that is what all of the big schools want to recruit him for. And the schools coming at him at this time in Iowa, it's a lot of the classic Big Ten powerhouses. Because the Big Ten is sort of around at this time. The Big Ten is one of the oldest conferences. It was created here initially in this like Great Lakes cradle of football. Uh, in 1895, the president of Purdue saw that, like, football was dying, quote-unquote, at the time. There was this crumbling image of the sport as people were dying during the game. And so he decided to get together with some other school presidents, athletic directors, representatives, and set up some more regulations to try and improve this image and maintain the sport's life, really. Uh, so they set up the Intercollegiate Conference of Faculty Representatives. And as the numbers stabilize over the next 40 years, eventually through different iterations, it comes to be known as the Big Ten. And like I said, all of the usual powerhouses are looking at him. We've got Michigan. We've got Minnesota, uh, his home state of Iowa, of course. Purdue, Northwestern. But he selects another founding powerhouse member. He does something I was not able to do, which is be accepted by the University of Chicago. Maroons! Maroons! The only school that did not take me when I was applying to colleges, the University of Chicago, does indeed welcome Jay Burrowmeyer into their ranks as a Maroon. And while this is like a joke now, legitimately, they had been a powerhouse for 40 years, the entire time under a coach by the name of Amos Alonzo Stagg, with two Gs, who during that time had also at times been the baseball coach, the track coach, the basketball coach, and the athletic director. <laughs> uh, Stag is a legend. The, the the Vision Three Championship still named after him. It is, and it's not the only thing that's named after Stag because again, he builds a long career here. He actually starts with uh, the Chicago Goldenrods, except their jerseys get too dirty, and so along with like a poll from students and stuff, decide, okay, we're going to be the Maroons now. Uh, he's won multiple national titles. Wins one in 1913, the same year that they changed the name of the stadium to Stag Field, and then like Clarence Gaines. He coaches for another 20 years in the stadium named after him. Uh, but eventually, he is forced to hang it up by the school president at the time. He's just like, hey, man, you're too old. And the mantle is going to be taken by two guys, a star coach and a star player. The player is Jay, who even in this early kind of positionless football is a total Swiss Army knife. Taysom Hill, eat your heart out. He is the play caller. He's the halfback. He is occasionally passing when they actually do pass, which is not super common, but he will. 
Uh, he'll also run blocking as a fullback often. He is three down linebacker on defense. The reason that he's the three down linebacker is because on the fourth down, well, he has to serve as the punt return specialist, obviously, which also coincides really well with the fact that he is the kickoff and punt specialist on their side with his foot. So literally does everything for the University of Chicago team. And he's doing it under the coach who is now also helping him take up this mantle, Clark Shaughnessy. This guy is often credited as the founder of the T-bone formation in the forward pass. And this is not entirely true. It's kind of a, you know, multiple people came to the same different schemes around the same time kind of thing. But he is certainly a proliferator of the two. And so Burwanger and Shaughnessy, they have come together here with the Maroons ready to make some noise. And in 1933, that noise is a bit of a whimper. It is bookended by a couple of shouts. In the five weeks of conference play, they go 0-3-2, including 1-0-0 tie, and they get outscored 7-56 during that time in the Big Ten. But they do win their bookending three non-conference games by a combined score of 111-0, including a 39-0 season opener over Dartmouth. They're still independent. There's not even an Ivy League at this time. Like This is an archaic sport that we are talking about. The next year starts off a lot better. They're 4-0 with two wins over conference foes this time, Indiana and Michigan. In that Michigan game, a player on defense tackles Jay Burwanger on one play, and he gets a bloody cut on his face. And it's not too gnarly. This is not a situation like we just had in Xavier's story. Uh, In fact, this player keeps playing on, but he does get a little scar from it. And this guy, for years afterwards, anytime he's shaving and he sees this small facial scar that he has from Jay Burwanger, he goes back and thinks of him. Uh, this person is future president Gerald Ford. Thank you, Let's go let that sink in for one sec. <laughs> That's fun. So yeah, after he scars Gerald Ford forever, they finish 0-4 down the stretch. Technically, I guess their 4-4 record this year is identical to their 3-3-2 record the year before. Like, it, it is a 500 record, right? Not the same. <laughs> It should be said that those records, like, they do not reflect the perception of Burwanger, though. Like, he is referred to as a one-man football team. Papers are talking about him being the idol of millions who cheer for the underdog. In one Iowa reporter's accounting of it, if you gave Jay a pair of shoes and the Minnesota line, he'd be the All-American team. He transcends this team in fame. He's earning nicknames like Genius of the Gridiron, the one I already mentioned, the one-man football team, the man in the iron mask. This is because his helmet has a metal face guard. Crazy idea, I know. He did adopt that after breaking his nose twice. I was like, I'm going to start putting something on this football helmet here because, again, I'm the only person the other team is looking for. He is also referred to as the Flying Dutchman. He's of German heritage. There's no particular reason for this other than the fact that people think Burwanger sounds vaguely Dutch. But he is a star. The next year, his senior season, they do lose to the Big Sixes, Nebraska and Lincoln. Win the next two games, take a tough loss then to Purdue, but they're 2-2 two and two at the half. They have their last three games at Stag. These are going to be his final games as a University of Chicago player at Stag Field. A 13-7 win over Wisconsin. A brutal 13-20 loss to the Ohio State. And a 24-0 drubbing means that they do end his stag field career on a two-game skid. That was against Indiana, by the way. However, they do hit the road for one final game of the season. The final game of Jay Burwanger's college career. It is at Memorial Stadium versus the University of Illinois. And late in the game, Burwanger 
is set to receive the punt. Catches it right at midfield. There's not a lot of good like newspaper recollection over what this return looked like. But we can imagine a bit of stumbling, a bit of rumbling. I can tell you it ends with a 49-yard return altogether to bring them to the one-yard line after he returns this punt. He then plunges in from the one-yard line for the touchdown. And then, after doing everything on special teams and offense at this point, he does also kick the extra point, which gives them a 7-6 to win in the final minute of the game for his final game-minute experience in college football altogether. What a finish for Jay Burwanger. Bring back old-school football. Bring back... Look, this podcast loves Justin Tucker. This podcast loves Jake Elliott. But there's just something romantic about position players kicking extra points. Yeah, absolutely. I would say field goals, you can still have a specialist. Extra points, trot out your best of the 11 that were on the field who just scored. So yeah, I think I agree with that. It should have to be the same 11 v 11 for extra points that it just was on the touchdown. I think that would be ethical. If that's on a punt return or a kickoff return, okay, you're in luck this time. All in all, stats... Not only are incomplete, but are incomparable to what we're talking about today. But I do want to try and like round up what modern estimates of his 24-game college career was with the three seasons. We got 439 rushing attempts, 1,839 yards, as 4.19 per carry. Devastatingly close, but still very, very good. In his 50 successful passes in 148 attempts, he does throw for 921 yards which is pretty good per completion. We don't need to talk about per attempt. In his 34 kickoffs, he averaged 46.3 yards, and in his 233 punts, he averaged 38 yards. Between touchdowns and extra points and field goals, he has 267 points altogether. No one has stuffed a stat sheet the way that Jay Burwanger did in any other sport. After this senior year in particular, he is a unanimous All-American at halfback. He is the only maroon to receive any votes whatsoever at any of the All-American positions. So truly a one-man team. The Chicago Tribune awards him the silver football as the top Big Ten player. And he is also voted the top athlete overall in the conference as a whole. This is the second straight year that he did so. It was much closer this time, but it was still a convincing win over a one-man track team of Jesse Owens at The Ohio State University. Incredible. Uh, so I want to also just say for a second, the article about him beating Owens, it's right next to, uh, on the original, like, December 6th, 1935 newspaper, the quote-unquote Ivy League schools tearing down goalposts, and they suggest removing goalposts altogether. One coach is just like, you can't eliminate field goals and extra points. This is the quote. We want to keep the foot in football. I just thought that was <laughs> delightful. The month before that, though, He had gotten another big honor. He had received a telegram from New York City, where the Downtown Athletic Club was set to hand out for the very first time the Downtown Athletic Club trophy. This was going to be awarded in football to the most valuable player east of the Mississippi. There were four total finalists. This is where, like, truly, we're going to talk about some of the fun schools. We had Army's Monk Meyer. He is one of the four finalists for this. Princeton's Pepper Constable. And the star of the Notre Dame team, William Shakespeare. No way. I swear to God, William Shakespeare. We Uh, used to be a great country. We used to be a proper fucking country. 
those are three of the four finalists. The other finalist is the one that wins it. It is University of Chicago's Jay Burwanger. He arrives in New York. He's handed this trophy by one John Heisman. He is the only person to ever meet John Heisman when receiving this award because John Heisman would actually pass away the following October. And to honor him, they named this trophy after him. That's correct. Jay Burwanger is your first ever Heisman Award winning player and the only one to ever meet the titular Heisman. Okay, we've beaten around the bush enough. Let's get to this draft. That's what we're here for. That's what the point of this category is. I wanted to set up the kind of player that is entering this because, look, if you've got the number one overall pick, this is your guy, obviously. This is a very early draft because for decades, like, pro ball had lagged behind college ball in a big way. You know, the Big Ten and the president of the SEC, they've been around for decades before even like the NFL that the NFL claims by saying it's the hundredth year, however many years ago, like that technical NFL hasn't even started by that point. It is starting to become a big business. Now this period right here in the early mid thirties is really the first time it's catching up in attendance with college ball. And as the money increases, bidding wars for players are starting up. And so the owners realize, you know, if we do this, the players get more money, not us. And so for that greedy reason, they do decide to institute the first ever North American sports draft entirely, the NFL draft. And on a whim, they decide, yeah, we'll just do it in reverse order of records last year. Which means on February 8th, 1936, thanks to their 2-9 and nine finish the year before, the Philadelphia Eagles are sitting in the Philadelphia Ritz-Carlton, where this is happening, with the number one overall pick in their hands. And again, if it's a question about talent, there is no question. It is Jay Burwanger. However, much like the Ottawa Senators, earlier like they're they're concerned about things outside of just talent a lot of players at this point are making about 50 dollars a game which is about a thousand dollars in modern day times not a whole lot burwanger having just worked his way through college he's been waiting tables he's been bussing restaurants and he's not about to just play for the love of the game he wants a thousand dollars in then money which is about twenty thousand per game now and Eagles owner Burt Bell is aware of this. This has been the scuttlebutt. He is an opponent of the very concept of the draft. He did not want to pay him at all. And so he decides, all right, fine. I'm going to just trade off this pick if everyone's clearly going to take that player with him. So he makes a trade with the owner of the Chicago Bears, George Hallis. So the first ever Heisman is going to be drafted to the city in which he just played in the first ever NFL draft. The first Heisman winner is your first ever NFL draft choice. There is a bit of a dispute on the exact discrepancy between his numbers and the Bears. However, there is definitely a discrepancy. Of this, there is no dispute. I'll share a quick recounting that Burwanger gave many years back to try and just kind of like sum up what the overall negotiations between him and Hallis looked like. He was on a dinner date in Chicago after the draft. And this is supposedly the only time that he and Hallis actually discussed face-to-face -face anything as they briefly crossed paths in this restaurant comes up to him at the restaurant and says, hey, how you doing? Let's talk real quick. Burwanger looks at Hallis and he says, look, $25,000 over two years with a no-cut contract. $12,500 a year, a little bit more than $1,000 per game, as people had expected. The reported numbers of what the Bears had offered were close. There is some question as to whether they offered two years. There's some question as to whether they offered the cut contract. And there was some difference in money, certainly. But all of that, you know, Hallis just decides in that moment while he's talking to the restaurant, that's too steep for him. And so they amicably, by all reports, shake hands. 
part ways. And uh, he wishes Jay and his date a fond farewell, as Jay Burwanger says. And that's pretty much the end of negotiations. He does not play for the Bears. In fact, he does not play for any professional football team whatsoever. There is another factor to this. Coming up in 1936 is the 1936 Olympics, where his fellow Big Ten Conference member Jesse Owens is going to have a star-making performance, and where college track star Jay Burwanger, yes, of course he's also been a college track star at UChicago this entire time. What do you think? He wants to compete in the decathlon at the 1936 Olympics. And if he signs <laughs> with a pro football team, he won't be able to compete in the decathlon. He'll lose his amateur status. And there's just not enough of financial reason for him to go join the Bears if it means foregoing this. And he also has said in some interviews, like, you know, I was class president at the time, which is absolutely true. He's a very good student. He wanted to graduate with his business degree. And so he just doesn't do it. He doesn't actually make the 1936 Olympics, unfortunately, but still has the chance to try out for it. With all that fame, he stays in the sport for a while. He's going to be a coach with his alma mater from 36 to 39. But in 1939, the president that fired Coach Stagg all those years ago, Robert Maynard Hutchins, he says, actually, football is just entirely incompatible with our aspirations as an academic institution. And so he shuts down the varsity football program. Two-time national winning contains the first ever Heisman winner. Nope, no more football whatsoever. And it would not return to UChicago in any capacity until it came back as a D3 sport in 1969. Very nice. Uh, He's not the only one to do that. I mean, that's why we don't have Tulane in the SEC. Also, we can't forget Sewanee, the school of the South. The uh, Harvard of the South, if you ask them. His track dream has ended. His football has come to an end. He does very briefly turn to rugby. There was something called the Eastern Rugby Union that was like college teams and local clubs and cities playing. He was one of the league's big draws because he's a huge name, having been an enormous college football star. And in 1939, he actually gets to play a game at Soldier Field. Uh, He plays against New York City there and wins the league title on Soldier Field despite never signing with the Bears, which I think is absolutely delightful. And the league lasts up until... December 7th, 1941, which is a day that will live forever in infamy, one might say, that is Pearl Harbor. He goes and joins the Navy during World War II, and after the war wraps up, that's the end of his playing career entirely. He doesn't take up any other sports. He decides to just capitalize on his name, and he starts J. Burwanger Incorporated, which manufactures plastic and sponge rubber stripping for cars. So just like one of those companies where you never would have heard of it, and then it turns out every single car needs rubber stripping, and he's making millions of dollars every year with this incredibly successful niche business. Pretty much runs it for the rest of his life, till the 1990s. Uh, when he sells it, it's pulling in $30 million annually. And like all throughout this time, he you know, he serves as an official He refs games for the NCAA, the Big Ten specifically. He's met many Heisman winners. He's met presidents. He had a reunion once with Gerald Ford, of course. He didn't really mind that his life moved past the sport that he loved with all this. Uh, As he said, there was no money in pro football back then, very little future. And so he just started a family with his first wife. He later passes away and second wife with stepchildren. He just kind of becomes another guy. But like... If there wasn't a place for him in the future of the sport, it it is so important, I think, to point out that his place in the past is very secure. In 1954, he and John Heisman are both part of the massive class that goes into the College Football Hall of Fame at that time. This Heisman Trophy, I do just want to mention the first one ever, like this historic artifact. It was used as a doorstop 
by his aunt for many, many years, but it is now properly preserved. The real one, there's some, there's a real one and a replica. I believe the real one has ended up in his high school in Dubuque and the replica has ended up at U Chicago. Some sources I found online said it was flipped. I choose to believe he'd give it to Dubuque. <laughs> uh, like a lot of these draft projections that we might think of when we think of this larger category, they involve a lot of enmity and ire. And I love that this one doesn't have it. It's just a really good comparison point between like what exists now and what existed then. You think about this U Chicago star, this Big Ten incandescent MVP who rejects being the first overall pick in the NFL to you know a massive team he's, he could have fully changed the fortunes of the bears or the eagles but there just wasn't money in it at this time and it's an incredible sliding door something that i know we come to a lot and the sport itself it is changed immensely plenty of the things have changed in it, but guys guys never change and that is why this week i submit to you jay burwanger guysman guys out of the maroons yeah it's a jay burbanger that was great Xavier's Xavier disagrees. Xavier has exited the show. <laughs> it is just back to the two hosts now. We're gonna have, we're gonna have to get another special guest. It took a hundred and ten or something episodes. <clears throat> I've left more times than that due to terrible puns. Well, instead of terrible puns, allow me to indulge you in one last guy to consider for this week. Real quick, I just want to tear through a few food items. The guy that I want to talk about today. He really, really, really didn't want to get drafted by this one certain team. And he thought that if he self-sabotaged and got really fat, really fast, they just <laughs> wouldn't draft him. Over a span of 48 hours. Well, first, let's, let's start with the first day. He began his day at Denny's where he had two Grand Slam breakfasts, which for those of you who don't know, is six pancakes, bacon, there's some hash browns in there, adds up to about 1,700 calories. Chase this with a vanilla milkshake. For lunch, he went to a couple spots. First, he went to KFC, got a whole bucket. Then he went to Red Lobster. He ordered half the menu there. He got two fish fillets at McDonald's. He got a large fry. A Diet Coke, though. You got to watch that sugar intake. Yeah, got to care about your figure. And especially, you got to save room because then for dinner, you're going to end up at a steakhouse. You're going to get 48-ounce T-bone, a baked potato, and of course, how can you pick just one dessert? You got to get three. Three? Oh, three. Okay. You got three desserts. Also throw in about 12 to 20 beers throughout the day as he's doing this as well. And then let's run that back the next day. Molly Skyler's like, all right, cool. What you got next? I'm feeling sick just thinking about this. This man put on 20 pounds in two days. And he thought for a second... He might have pulled it off, but when that fateful day came in the 1984 NBA draft, the round mound of rebound was unsuccessful, and he was drafted to the Philadelphia 76ers. We need to talk about Charles Barkley today. Charles Barkley. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've prepared myself mentally for Xavier to have yet another fight about who does and does not constitute well, it, it, the guy. It's fine. It's fine. I don't have to get into this because we already know that I'm going, I'm not going to vote for Charles Barkley. I'm, I'm going to go back. And I'm Charles, one of the most popular NBA players of all time. 
I'm going to go ahead and just copy and paste Xavier's argument from the Nick Foles. I'm just going to control F, find Nick Foles' name, replace it with Charles Barkley. We know what his input is, Diaz. It's time to hear the story first. Hey, to be fair, that one was more Philly specific. This is literal all sports in general, but I do want to hear about it because putting on 20 pounds in two days is hilarious. Look, we'll get into it more in depth a little bit later. For now, all I'm going to say is, if we deny that a guy can be great, then are we not limiting what a guy can be? <laughs> I believe a guy can Don't be great. Don't me in, Xavier. We'll save the arguing for a little later. For now, we'll start with his date of birth, February 20th, 1963. Famously, Charles Barkley is from Alabama, grew up in Leeds, Alabama, which is very different from Leeds, England. I did come to find out. While in Leeds, he had a little bit of turmoil early on in his life. Uh, His parents got divorced. He would go on to live with his mom, who got remarried. His stepfather died when he was 11. He had a little brother, Daryl, that passed away as an infant. Not an easy life for young Charles, but what he did have was basketball. Loved to play it, but he had a big man's game and a little man's body. Obviously, we know this to be the case with him in the NBA, but... As a junior, he was only 5'10", but he was still trying to play as like a low post player. So at 5'10", 220, he didn't make varsity as a junior. When he came back for senior year, thankfully he had a growth spurt over the summer. He grew to 6'4". Now he's a behemoth on that low block in the high school basketball game. Averaged 19.1 points a game and 17.9 rebounds per game. And he led his team to a 26-3 and record en route to the state semifinals. They did not make the state tournament the year prior. But Charles Barkley grew six inches and came in like a bat out of hell and said, God damn it, let's go win. We're making it this year. Um, we all know how much of a difference six inches makes. It can be all the difference in the world. And the whole year, like to Charles, this is like, this is the pinnacle of what he could have ever imagined basketball would be. He was not on any college scouts radars at all even throughout his entire senior season putting up these stats powering this team it's kind of like oh like this cute little story of this kid that had a growth spurt the top recruit in the state of alabama that year was a guy by the name of bobby lee hurt of course bobby lee is the best basketball prospect in early 1980s alabama auburn of course they're going to send somebody out to go watch this game. Let's see if we can you know, put up the walls and retain this top Alabama prospect. Sonny Smith was the head coach of Auburn University. And when his assistant reported back from the game, he said, oh, how Bobby Lee hurt. Look, he's like, look, Bobby looked fine. But I got to tell you, I saw a kid. This is the direct the, the quote. There's a fat guy who can play like the wind. <laughs> Hell yeah. Love a chubby athlete. Very quickly. Auburn recognizes, oh, like, nobody's recruiting. Okay, well, shit, we got a scholarship. Why don't you come here? Uh, and so he goes to Auburn. He's an, immediately a force because, obviously, across all sports, I think it can be said, we all love a fat guy, right? Whenever a fat guy does something athletic, it, it inspires something within all of us. It, it just it really hits home. He's instantly a crowd favorite for Auburn. High-flying blocks, high-flying dunks. Even though he played as the center, he would often get the rebound and then be like, yeah, I'm playing as the center, but I'm also 6'4 and way faster than any of these gangly, 7-foot, Mark Eaton-looking motherfucking centers that they had back then. 
So a frequent play he does is he gets the rebound, comes all the way down, jams it. It makes for a lot of good highlights and, and some good individual honors. He he makes all SEC first team all three years that he plays at Auburn. But the team itself just isn't really good. Auburn has never qualified for the NCAA tournament up to this point. It's his junior year. Charles Barkley is not going to hold back. He's going to dominate. He is going to lead Auburn to their first NCAA tournament berth in history. And they're actually positioned pretty well. They're, they're going to be a five seed coming in. But as anybody who follows the NCAA tournament will tell you, the five seed is the most five dangerous goals. seed to be. Yeah. And they do lose by one point to Richmond in spite of Barkley putting up 23 points and 17 rebounds with four assists, two steals, and two blocks on 80% from the field. An efficiency king. Wasn't enough was to stop enough. the spiders, though. You know, spiders always beat giant cats. Good just, just remember that. Eight is more than four, last I checked. It's simple math. Uh, we should have seen that upset coming. But coming off of this, you know, Charles Barkley, even getting a college scholarship was like far above and beyond what you could have imagined. And now he is one of the top prospects coming into the NBA draft. And that 84 draft, it's a pretty famous one. It's one we've covered on this show before. It was Akeem Olajuwon who went first. Sam Bowie, famously, went second. Um, a guy by the name of Michael Jordan went third. Everybody forgets who went fourth. It was Sam Perkins, who <laughs> was the best teammate that Michael Jordan had at UNC. So he kind of got like the cheerleader got, effect. Yeah, some of that Michael Shine. He got a little bit of that Michael Shine. Sam Perkins, wow, lasted 17 years in the NBA. Good for him. But... The fifth pick is what we're worried about here. As I kind of went over in the preamble, Charles really didn't want to go to Philadelphia. But this isn't because, in, the, in a modern sense, like uh, Evan Turner and Andre Godala, right? They were on that podcast saying, like, nobody wants to play for the Sixers because they knew we were trying to lose. First of all, you guys were there like five years before the process happened. Stop it. But... You might think that that kind of reasoning was why Charles didn't want to go to Philadelphia. It was actually about as opposite as it could be. The Sixers won the 1983 NBA Finals. 84, uh, they were bounced probably by the Celtics. I don't need to look it up. But, you know, their position as a contender. But because of that, they have some high-salary players on the cap. You know, you got Dr. J. You got Moses Malone. You got Mo Cheeks. Even bench players like Bobby Jones are making a pretty good salary. So the way that the NBA cap rules were structured at the time, if a team was up against the max, it was still a hard salary cap, but you could only offer 75000 on a one-year deal to a rookie. That was the most you could offer. Versus Charles Barkley, if he fell to, say, the Washington Bullets at the sixth pick, would have stand to make about 500000 a year. That, so that, that's wild that the union let that rule come into existence. It, I mean, presumably the players association either did not exist or had significantly less power at this time. Sure. Um, yes. But yes, no, it crazy that this kind of disparity was allowed to happen. That of course famously leads to Charles Barkley gorging himself over that 48 hour span an obscene amount of food. Where was that, by the way, out of curiosity? Like, this is back home in Alabama? No, so this was in the lead-up to 
like NBA draft weekend. So, you know, the players are in town, they're, you know, they're getting their physicals, they're getting weighed. So like, he knew this was going to be a thing. Like, I'm going to go to this weigh-in and I'm going to be... have some questions. I mean, so one person in particular had questions was Howard Katz, the Sixers owner, because they were, it was, it was kind of expected the top four was going to go the way it was. And Charles Barkley was the highest upside pick at five. When he saw him, he, he just grabbed me and said like, he said like, what the hell's wrong with you? Are you fat, lazy, or just stupid? And he hasn't even drafted him yet. This is still like a guy who is coming out of college and is in the NBA draft. This, this and is might like get a 20, by the 21 year old child being spoken to. Yes. And, you know, Charles is kind of thing like, I, I think it might have worked. I think I might just uh, slip on down to Washington. But the Sixers call his bluff and they draft him and they bring him in. When he first got to Philadelphia, it's really an interaction with Moses Malone that Charles Barkley thanks the most because his first day, you know, he's walking around all mopey, not really saying anything to anybody. Fuck, I can't believe, you know, I came out a year early. Like, I could have gone back to Auburn for my senior year and I'm only going to make 75000 Like, fuck this. And Moses Malone grabbed him and basically gave him the come to Jesus talk of like, you can fucking feel sorry for yourself if you want to. Like, this is a championship team. This is a team that can win a championship. If you get your head in it, you can be the reason that we win a championship. You can also be the reason we don't win a championship. You know, Moses Malone is older at this point. Dr. J is older at this point. Mo Cheeks is older at this point. There's a bunch of guys who frankly, don't have the time to be patient for Charles Barkley to get out of his feelings and get in shape. And that talk works. Gets Charles Barkley on the straight and narrow for his entire career. And still to this day, he'll say Moses Malone is who he owes his NBA career to. And coming right in that first year, instantly a dominant force. Starts 60 games as a rookie. Only averages the 14 points a game, but again, very efficient. 55% from the field, 8.6 rebounds a game. 14 points a game starting 60 games as a rookie. Right, for a team with championship aspirations. The Sixers go to the Eastern Conference Finals that year, but as is often the theme for the Sixers in the 80s, they do get bounced by the Boston Celtics. Yes, in the 80s. Only in the 80s, certainly not recently. Not like this is an everlasting theme was throughout it, the Adam entire Tyson, you said it was in the second round of the playoffs? No, this was the Eastern Conference Finals. So, oh, you know, okay. Hey, there you go. Something it I is a different tradition since, then. Something I haven't seen since my age entered the tens column. The Sixers in the Eastern Conference Finals. Again, like, you know, they have these older players, but you're, it's, it's lining up where... As these older players are kind of descending, Charles is ascending. And in the second season is where you really see this. He makes a significant leap up to 25 points a game on 58% from the field and 16 rebounds a game. Those were his playoff stats. In the Eastern Conference semifinals, they're going against the Milwaukee Bucks. It goes to a game seven. The Sixers are up one late. Charles Barkley, goaltends with about 20 seconds left. And that was the deciding bucket. You hate to see it. Pretty rough. But the Sixers have this core. And what they also have coming in is the number one pick. Because we need to remember, this is a time when 
a lot of NBA franchises, how do I put this lightly, were run by morons. And these morons, I mean, for example, Ted Stepien, he has the role named after him, have terrible franchises and trade away their first round picks in pursuit of like maybe winning five more games. And then when they don't, they're the worst team in the league and then they don't have the number one pick. The Sixers had exactly this situation come up with the LA Clippers. And they had the number one pick and it looked like they were going to be able to get Brad Doherty. Moses Malone is aging out, but now you have Charles Barkley and Brad Doherty as this dominant front court pairing, take Eastern Conference by storm, and they don't keep the pick. They trade it for like this fucking random sixth man from Cleveland. But it's okay, because you still got Moses Malone, but the Sixers trade him to the Washington Bullets for nothing. So now it's really just Charles and Dr. J left at this point. Charles gets his first NBA All-Star game, gets the NBA second team again. They get into the playoffs. He averages 25 and 13 in a five-game best-of-five first-round series loss to the Milwaukee Bucks. So I at least appreciate the Sixers had a little flavor at this time. The next year, Dr. J retires. And now we kind of go into the, like, not dead man walking, but, like, If you thought the Sixers did a bad job of getting talent around Joel Embiid, they did a 10 times worse job of getting talent around Charles Barkley. Pretty consistently averages over 25 a game the rest of his Philadelphia career. The 89-90 season is one I really want to talk about, though, because in this season, Charles played 39 minutes a game, averaged 25.2 points to go with 11.5 rebounds, 4.1 assists, 2.5 stocks a game on a true 60% from the field. Like not rounding up every 10 shots he takes, he's making six. Led the league in field goal percentage. Received the most first place MVP votes that year. But because of the West Coast bias, it went to Magic, who got less Mm. first place votes. Because of those West Coast biased people not putting Charles in the top two. West Coast elites. Their love of sharing the basketball instead of just going and getting it. That's one of my favorite Charles quotes, by the way. And I guess I'll kind of just take this opportunity to talk about how funny it is that Charles Barkley today is like probably like one of the loudest voices against analytics. He's come around a little bit, but especially in those early Warriors years, he was probably the loudest voice against analytics and like, not really making any good arguments in fairness, just kind of saying like, oh, it's just a bunch of nerds with calculators, which I also say a lot. So who am I to judge? But one of my favorite quotes about him, go get the rebound again. And, you know, fuck Magic Johnson and his passing. Just go get the ball. He said, I always laugh when people ask me about rebounding techniques. I've got a technique. It's called just go get the damn ball. When you say it like that, it's a wonder more people don't do it. People should just shoot better. Exactly. Like, why did he miss that shot? Is he stupid? But yeah, I mean, Barkley got robbed in that 89-90 season. Played out two more years with the Sixers. I do want to note for the 91-92 season, famously, 91 NBA Finals was the last games that Magic Johnson played for a while because then the HIV announcement came out. Charles Barkley wore 34 his entire Sixers career, except for that last season, he wore 32 to honor Magic Johnson. He also was one of the loudest voices speaking out to say 
let Magic Johnson play in the 92 NBA All-Star game. If you remember, that was a huge controversy, maybe isn't the right word, but there was a lot of concern, a lot of lack of knowledge about how HIV was transmitted at the time. A lot of people that were concerned about it. And let me look this up because I want to get the quote exactly right. They asked Charles, you know, are you concerned about Magic Johnson playing in this game? And what Charles said was, quote, we're just playing basketball. It's not like we're going to have unprotected sex with Magic. Just get right down to it. Straightforward. Dismiss all the concerns. Really only as Charles Barkley can put it, right? That 92 season was his last with the Sixers. Obviously, he ended up being traded to the Phoenix Suns. One thing that a lot of people don't know, he was actually supposed to go to the Lakers at first. Before Chris Paul, Charles Barkley had a deal agreed to be traded to the Lakers, but the Sixers balked at the last second. Okay, and so this I can isn't only the league scuttling it. This isn't the league scuttling it, but what it is, is it is the first example of the Colangelo's coming in to fuck over Philadelphia because it is a horrific return that the Sixers get for Charles Barkley. In return for Charles Barkley, who would go on to win the MVP that season, Philadelphia 76ers got, first of all, the deal with the Lakers was going to be for James Worthy and Eldon Campbell. Now, granted, James Worthy was old by that point, but at least that's like semi-reasonable. Instead, the Sixers got back Tim Perry, Andrew Lane, and Jeff Hornacek. Knicks legend Jeff Hornacek? It is that guy. When Jeff Hornacek is the most notable player that you got back in a trade for a future MVP, that was not a good trade. Fair fair Um, thing to say. But if it wasn't for that trade, Jeff Hornacek, along with Clarence Witherspoon, would not have been the two Sixers on the original NBA Jam. They are... Forever a dumpster fire within the greatest basketball game of all time. That feels apt. Um, So we at least we have that. Fuck Jerry Colangelo for pulling off that trade. It is the first time the Colangelo's fucked over Philadelphia. That 92-93 season, Barkley does win his first MVP. Goes on to play against the Bulls in the NBA Finals. Barkley proclaimed before that Finals, famously, that it was the Suns' destiny to win the NBA title. That didn't happen. Michael Jordan found John Paxson, and the Bulls won in six. Barkley did, however, register a triple-double in game four of those finals when he put up 32, 12, and 10. So there was a Jokic before there was Jokic, and he was about a foot shorter and way fatter. Maybe the same amount of fat, but when you compress it. Right, exactly. I think that's, I think that's a fair way to put it. Unfortunately, after that season is like when injuries start catching up with Charles a little bit. Again, this is a lot of weight for a man his size to not only be carrying, but also like exploding and jumping very high. And, you know, it's a lot of pressure on a lot of joints. He has some back issues that started acting up. He would miss what would have been his eighth consecutive NBA All-Star game because he ruptured his uh, right quadricep. He would still come back later that season to fight and to play in the playoffs. They would go up 2-0 on the Houston Rockets in that 93-94 season. But as you may recall, the Houston Rockets won the NBA Finals that year, and they did top the Suns in seven games. Yeah, fuck them. They can all go to hell. The entire city of Houston can burn. I mean, I like Akeem Olajuwon. 
Kim Olajuwon's cool, and also Vernon Maxwell's like seemingly one-sided beef with the entire state of Utah is fantastic. Still the best tweet of all time. I want to apologize to all the Utah fans for all my tweets. If I knew you had internet in Utah, I would have never tweeted that. <laughs> Uh, but we digress. Vernon Maxwell is a Sixers legend. Charles Barkley is a Sixers legend, but we're focusing on his son's time right now. In the 95-96 season, field goal percentage is starting to tick down, especially with those injuries. The previous two seasons, he was under 50%. He was right at 50% this year, and he would get traded to Houston, where he would join up with Hakeem Olajuwon. This was basically like his ring-chasing era. A little bit. He's still a very effective player. Like I don't mean it to say it like that, but they just named the the 50 greatest basketball players of all time in the NBA. And this Rockets team now has three of them. You got Clyde Drexler. You got Charles Barkley. They're thinking it has all the makings of a super team. For the 1996-97 season, his first in Houston, they were very effective. Uh, he was the second leading scorer behind Olajuwon. But this allowed him to focus more on rebounding. He had 13.5, which was the second best of his career. The Rockets would go to the Western Conference Finals, and they were up, I believe, two on the Jazz late in Game 6, with the potential to force it into a Game 7 to go back to Utah. When, I guess, I wasn't going to say not the biggest piece of shit. They're both pretty shitty. John Stockton hits a three at the buzzer, and the Jazz win in six. Yeah, I would John Stockton Carmelo completely irrespective of that win themselves. Uh, one of the like worst as people two time pairings in basketball history. And it's incredible too, like when you look back, like I remember I think it was the ninety seven finals, like Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman are obviously fighting for a lot of rebounds. Or no, it was ninety eight because it was Bob Costas was on the call. Bob Costas, like Dennis Rodman, this like degenerate filth. I can't believe like Carl Malone like is stooping himself to this level and it's like all this stuff was like public knowledge then too. You know what I mean? Not saying Dennis Rodman's a saint, but there's no one that's clean in that mud fight. Right, exactly, exactly. The difference is Dennis Rodman knows he's a pig in that mud fight. Yep, yep, that's yep, the yep, difference. Yep. But that's kind of like as good as it gets for his entire Houston stint. He's battling injuries the whole way. He only starts 41 games the next season. He only starts 40 the year after that. And in his 1992-2000 season, he's actually back in Philadelphia for a game. I actually remember watching this game. Goes up for a rebound at one point, and that same quadricep that he ruptured before, he ruptures again. At this point, he's 37, and he just ruptured his quadricep. He was kind of already planning on this being his last season, but... Very determined to go out on his own terms. So he rehabs his ass off, comes back just in time for the very last game of the year. Starts and like, it's not like just like charity minutes, like he's actually playing, gets an offensive rebound, puts it back up, calls a timeout and promptly subs himself out of the game and retires. Walks off into the sunset. I did not know the, the circumstances under which he went out. First off, that he got injured in Philadelphia. That's. I don't want to say delightful because no injury is delightful, but that is an excellent little twist of fate. Fuck yeah, that he got back and got that last rebound. Way to go, Mound. Round Mound to rebound, finished off his NBA career. He averaged 22 points a game for his career, 11.7 rebounds. In and of its own right, if his time in the spotlight ended there, 
a, a fantastic career and one certainly worth remembering. But obviously, in a modern world, we need to talk about Charles Barkley on Inside the NBA. I would say he is the sole reason that show is successful. I shouldn't say the sole reason. He is the biggest reason that show is successful as it is. Long Dong Tigers. Don't you dare disrespect Shaq. Well, no. So that's a big reason. I just want to say I'm so glad that we've had a third use of that ever. Well, a big reason why I think their chemistry works is because, I mean, in that example, the Guangdong Tigers bit, that's the end of a long bit where they're playing who he played for. And Charles is getting every single player wrong and Shaq's getting every single player right. And when Shaq turns it around there, he didn't write Guangdong Tigers like anglicized. He wrote like, in Chinese characters, Mandarin. yes. Yeah, the proper Mandarin Chinese characters, which is like, obviously now the bit is, okay, this was rigged and, you know, Charles has to play the idiot. And like, that show works because Charles has no problem playing the idiot. I think that's a big reason why, like, we don't need to defend some of the things he says. Big old women in San Antonio, not a great thing. You shouldn't be saying that. But I think the reason he gets more leeway with that kind of stuff than I think other people might. It's because he'll be the first person to make all the same jokes about himself. And he is, welcomes all the same kind of jokes made about himself. I think that's what kind of makes the difference. Two of the older, but I think more worth remembering bits that Charles Barkley has from his time on Inside the NBA. I couldn't remember the circumstances around this bet, but... Kenny Smith said that a certain team was going to play well, and Charles Barkley said that team stinks or that player stinks. One of those things. And Charles Barkley said, if he or they do X, I'll kiss your ass on national TV. And, like, you know, shook his hand. Sure enough, the team or the guy goes out and does the thing. Charles Barkley fully ready to pay up. And on the next week's episode, they actually they brought out a donkey. And Kenny Smith said, hey, this is my ass. Kiss yeah. my ass. So I always loved that bit. There was also, do you remember uh, Dick Bavetta? Dick Bavetta would have been a good one to do last week. Yeah. So the Dick Bavetta thing was like, Charles Barkley, as he you know was wont to do, was on a riff about the state of the NBA. And he was talking about, man, so, some of these referees are just too old. I mean, look at Dick Bavetta out there. I love you, Dick, but Dick should not be on the NBA court right now. He can't <laughs> get up and down the court. And then uh, Marv Albert said to him, I bet Dick could beat you in a race. And Charles said, no chance. So at NBA All-Star Weekend, I want to say it was after the skills competition, but before the three-point shootout, a featured event was Charles Barkley versus Dick Bavetta. They started at half court. You race to one end. You go all the way back down for one and a half. You go all the way back down again for two and a half. And then you come back for three and a half uh, lengths of the court. It was close the whole way. Dick actually got out to an early lead, but then I think Charles Barkley just like competitive instincts. Like I'm not going to let a fucking 75 year old man beat me in a race. He has a couple decades on him at least. A couple, Sorry, Diaz. Uh, yeah. You made the cardinal sin of not prefacing Marv Albert by saying Sigma Alpha Mu alumni Marv Albert. Alumnus. Yeah, alumnus. I'm sorry for the person that I'm I very am. Fair. Alumnus. Very fair. Very fair. No, no, offsetting point. penalties, your cardinal sin. No, no, that's grammar. I don't care. Just say Sigma Sammy. Alpha. Marv Albert the Sammy. 
Marv Sammy Albert, and now all of our listeners are confused why we just give Martin Albert this nickname of Sammy. But those who know, know. Charles Barkley won that race. And for somebody who is as brash as he is, I think he's also a lot more in touch than he might appear at some times. The one clip, and I still have no idea what the context is behind this. Charles Barkley just seems to be at a nightclub, potentially a gay club. I'm not sure exactly what the context is. But Charles Barkley with his message to the LGBTQ community. I want to say this. If you're gay and transgender, I love you. Hey, and if anybody gives you shit... You tell him, Charles, that fuck you. And again, just as he said about Magic Johnson and said, look, I'm not going to have unprotected sex with Magic, so why would I care about playing basketball with him? In a way that only Charles Barkley can say it, gets straight to the core of all of the trans and sports issues and everything that comes up with all those debates, Charles Barkley cutting right to the point. And when we reflect back on who he is, yes, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. If we want to say he's disqualified from consideration on that basis alone, I can't really say anything to it. But I think there is so much to be said for Charles Barkley's story that going into his senior year of high school, he didn't even know if he was going to make the varsity of basketball team. But seemingly through sheer rage and just go get the damn basketball, just wanting that basketball more than anybody else, He turned himself into one of the greatest basketball players of all the time, one of the greatest personalities in sports broadcasting of all time. And I think on the basis of those two things, he can also be one of the greatest guys of all time. If we were to be bringing in Charles Barkley, he would be one of the greatest of all time. He would be, I think, the closest we've ever come to approaching the Babe Dietrichson's Harrius Horizon. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I stand on that. I really like Charles Barkley. I I like exactly what you said. He's uh he got brought up a lot in the orientation for the summer camp that I worked at every year by this one guy who would come in as this old timer who'd worked there for a couple of years and is still there. And he used Charles Barkley as a negative example at this time every single year because he pointed out an interview that Charles Barkley had at some point. I cannot source this at this moment. Uh, but one in which he was asked about like being a role model. Charles Barkley had some issues with drugs and the like while uh, playing in the NBA. Had, had Drinking some... and gambling mostly. Not, yeah, not as much drugs, but yes. I mean, alcohol is a drug. So substances. Sorry. Yeah, substances. Substances yeah. would have been the better word to he use. He had his Thank addictions. You. Thank you. Thank you. All that to say, you know, he said, I'm not a role model. He, he rejected that. And uh, the guy that was you know having this talk to a bunch of fucking like 19 and 20 year olds at summer camp. I uh, was always just pointing out like, you don't get to choose to be a role model or not. Like people are going to assign that to you. It is fascinating to think about that nowadays, looking to a Charles Barkley who does seem if nothing else to have accepted that that is a fact to have accepted that he is a person that is a role model. We do like to see growth. see that there is the thing about him being in the basketball hall of fame. Like there is that. Uh, I I don't think it's just that because, okay. Charles Barkley on both the 50th anniversary and 75th anniversary NBA teams. I don't think that by itself is disqualifying. There are guys on those lists that you could say 
even despite their greatness, haven't been talked about enough. Like you could say that Dolph Shays is is a guy, or you could say you could say that Paul Ayers in Nate Paul Archibald. Ayers Paul Ayers yeah, in. I, I I tried to get Paul Ayers in. Like that that's that's a place where you know it's not automatically disqualifying, but Charles Barkley is a four-time Sports Emmy Award winner for Best Studio Analyst, including just like three years ago. One of the main hosts on the most popular sports show in America that has 17 sports Emmys. Like, he he has never left the public sphere, so there's no need to remember him, in my opinion, just because he's always there. That's a good argument. And that's... I don't dislike Charles Barkley. I love Charles Barkley. I love Inside the NBA. But I don't need to remember a guy that I just watched on TV yesterday. That was very well put, Xavier. All that's fair. I hope I at least brought up a few fun anecdotes about him and his life that people didn't know. I mean, I liked hearing that the Sixers, despite having the fifth pick, were hard capped because they were too good. Like, it's just a terrible system. It was the max that they were allowed to offer him. It's just like, it's a shitty, like, construction of a CBA. It's the most interesting. I mean, to get to the category, like, to me, Charles Barkley's is the most interesting draft thing. Like, I enjoy Jay Burwanger's very much, but also he literally runs into him at a restaurant and is like, you can't pay me enough to do that, man. I can go write a sports column and manufacture car parts and make enough money to support my family forever. That would be That's the only thing I have is that for the category, Charles Barkley is the one who took the most grievous actions to try to not be drafted. Cause like you did say, don't you dare draft me. Yeah. And Berard was super ready to go to the team. Like the team is the one that didn't want him for Jay Burwanger would have played for the bears. If he got offered enough money, and Berard would have played for the Senators, like on a straight definition of who fits this the best. I think you are correct. I then am still torn by Xavier's point that, like, if the purpose that this is remembering, it is fair that Charles Barkley is still very much in the public sphere in a way that I don't think a guy has been before. And I will say, I think that Burwanger still fits the category. I'll admit that even for my own category. Just because Brian Burrard was twisting it a little bit, but I just like that story a lot more than, like, I'm not going to talk about Eric Lindros. Eric Lindros is the easy one, but I thought Eric Lindros too good for this category. Otherwise, you know, that would have it would have fit the topic a little better. I thought uh, Brian Burrard was an interesting, that, like, it, story that is better suited to remember thinking about that happening. And Jay Burwanger fits that category too. Like, even if it was almost kind of for the same reasons as Charles Barkley, where it's financial, it's a financial reason of like, I'm just trying to get the best deal for myself. You could say that they did the same thing, but on in different ways. So I'm not going to disqualify any of them from it. The closest for disqualifying is my own guy. And if you want to disqualify Brian Burrard because he was made into the villain who didn't want to be drafted, even if that wasn't the actual case, it was what perception became reality for at least for a couple of years with Ottawa fans. But I wouldn't disqualify Jay Burwanger on those grounds. I do want to point out real quick, I went back and checked. By my count, we do have two Basketball Hall of Fame members currently in the Hall of Guys well. 
Those are Louis Dampier and Arvidas Sabonis. It's it's not unprecedented for basketball Hall of Famers to make it in here. That'll be a filthy three v three team. Louis <laughs> raining in the threes, Sabonis <laughs> dominating everything and passing out, and then if Arvidas somehow doesn't get the rebound, Charles Barkley just stuffing it on your face. Yeah, there is no such thing as a defensive rebound in that game. Either Louis make or Arvidas or Charles get and give back to Louis until he make or make themselves. They got the put back. Yeah, no, they got the put back. I like the Maroons. I like Jay Burwanger. I'm fine not voting for my own guy. I just was happy to say that story because I like Brian Burrard's story. I like Jay Burwanger. And it made me think about the old, like, 1930s, 1940s football. I was thinking about that that era when all of the different like flight schools and army bases had their own football teams. So there were years where it was like Iowa flight school ranked number four overall, facing like Michigan Marine Academy. I love the weirdness of it. I like learning about the fact that he scarred a president, a future he did president. Scar a president. <laughs> And I, I don't know I, I just enjoyed thinking about that, remembering and reminiscing on like what I also know about old school football. Plus, go Maroons. He does have a great thesis statement as a guy. Like I don't even know what like Charles Barkley's thesis statement would be, but Jay Burwanger is like, oh yeah, it's the guy that won the first Heisman. I don't know what that statement is for Charles Barkley. I think that's the problem. I think the fact that it's still just Charles Barkley, because if you say Charles Barkley, he's there. I I think that's exactly kind of summing it up. Like he isn't, there's no way to guyify his identity yet. Cause it will be at some point. Do you remember that guy that was on inside the NBA with Shaq? Like someday that will be how you describe Charles Barkley. I think I'll say if we were a Gen Z or Gen Alpha podcast, Charles Barkley would be like, Yo, do you guys know, you know the fucking fat guy on Inside the NBA? He balled back in the day. Did you know that? <laughs> and he was just Gen as Alpha. big. Right, exactly. If we were Gen Z or Gen Alpha, I might have had a better case. But we were, we watched him play basketball. Yeah. I'm looking at the 1942 military service football records. Second to Air Force, Manhattan Beach Coast Guard, March Field, Georgia Pre-Flight, North Carolina pre-flight, Jacksonville NAS, Great Lakes Navy, Iowa pre-flight, Fort Riley, Fort Monmouth, St. Mary's pre-flight, Fort Douglas, Corpus Christi NAS, Camp Davis. There are 15 more after that, and almost all of them were ranked because all of the best players had to go to the military. World War II would have been popping by then, right? Yeah, well, this was, this was 42, so yeah. Yeah, U.S. World War II is 42-45. They're literally playing for their lives right now. We need I, to make this bowl game. I can't get fucking shipped out yet. By 1943, they were up to about 40 different teams in the military service conference. Well, like an army guy, Monk Meyer, who it sucks that he has the third best name in the Heisman finalist that year. Uh, but he was the second place finisher behind Jay Burwanger for the first Heisman award winner. Army, not in the military service conference. <laughs> Army was still good. independent. They're too good, yeah. And to be clear, like, Burwanger also in some Hall of Fames, but it sounds as though the decree about him is that that is not too good for him. Well, before we get into honorifics, I just, because 
when you brought up Erwanger, like I obviously I had to look up the rest of that Heisman class. Uh, you just touched on Meyer. Pepper Constable, he bet against Princeton every game that he played. Did you know this? <laughs> Is that just motivation? He said he firmly believed that the wager brings a victory to the Tiger and a loss to myself. I love that. It's like, is it ethical Pete Rose? Like, what is it? I don't get it. He's betting against his team, but like they won two national championships in that time. Fascinating. But what else is fascinating is to think that the first best player in college football would be a guy who had the chance to make his career in Philadelphia with the Eagles. What a different franchise the Eagles could be if Jay Berwanger had, in fact, came and played for them. But he was a man that went by his own path. He was a man that was described as Dutch, even though he is German, and those are two distinct different places. He was nearly a decathlon participant in the Olympics, but what he is certainly is a guy, and he shall now be enshrined in our Hall of Guy. Welcome, Jay Berwanger, to the Hall of Guy. Do you think they thought it was... Deutschman at first like they started with that and then it just became Dutchman because we're dumb well I always like I always question shit like that like I don't know why we don't just call countries what they call themselves Germany yeah. should be Deutschland Spain should be España like well they're starting be- to do that now yeah. where Turkey is now Turkey and yep. the Czech Republic is just Czechia yeah I, I endorse both of those I endorse both Tell us what to call you. We're all about preferred names and pronouns, please. I was about to say, what country do you think is trans? We don't need to get into that. What we need to get into instead is... Man has a pretty good train system. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Anyway, thank you so much to producer Craig and all the coders behind him. Thank you to our musical director, Don Ham, for our lovely theme music. Thank you to you, dear listener, for joining us once again. We'll be back with, I guess, our last regular one of this season. Yeah, we're getting down the line, man. We'll make sure to pick a banger of a category for that one. We hope you'll join us. Uh, hey, if you got us anywhere in your Spotify rap, I know some of you did. Um, we'd love to see it. It would truly mean the world to us. I've seen it from a couple people, and it's uh, it's really fun and awesome. If you want to know how to get that to us, why you can find that information and everything else about us at bit.ly slash remember that guy. Of course, it's all lowercase, all one word. And I think that's everything I got. Is there anything else from you, my friends? The 1945 Sun Bowl was the Southwestern Pirates versus the Mexico Pumas. Do not let the deep LeBron state media convince you that the in-season tournament matters. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters this year in the NBA, as far as I can tell from San Antonio. Go birds, though. A hearty go birds all around. And as we cheer on these birds, I will remain one of your hosts, James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Abe Lincoln once said, I cannot tell a guy. Surprised you hadn't done that one before. Also, was that I, not Washington? I, whoever it was. <laughs> one of those guys. <laughs> Remember that president? <laughs> it's our new history spinoff. Honest Abe. <laughs> Can't tell a lie.
Honestly, he chopped down a cherry tree and then he made a log cabin out of it. And then he was born in that log cabin. And then he dropped the bomb on Japan. <laughs> <laughs>